All right, so uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 6, and I know the men's ministry just began uh, a series on spiritual warfare, and sure enough, this is our spiritual warfare chapter, so uh, especially for you men out there that have been encouraging to be a part of church stuff as much as possible, uh, hopefully this will uh, supplement what you're doing in men's group. So um, let's pray. And then we'll get going in Ephesians 6. Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we uh, just present ourselves before you, Lord, this evening. uh, That with your word open and your words being spoken, Lord, that all of the eternal purpose behind that would be fulfilled in our day-to-day, in our lives today, Lord. So uh, we submit ourselves to you, Lord, to hear what you would say, to receive it as truth from you. And Lord, um, just be changed a little bit more into that uh, image of your son. So Lord, uh, we dedicate this time to you. So thankful that you're our God. And we celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, as we just look back to see how we left off, because Paul didn't write this in chapters. This is just going from paragraph to paragraph in his writings. Um, He was talking about our relationships, and we ended last week talking about mutual submission and then how that mutual submission plays out in a man's life, in marriage, through being a husband, and in a woman's life, through being a wife. And so now he's going to open this chapter, <coughs> which I think he would be surprised that we divided the chapter here because he's going from, from marriage, right, to children, right? doesn't sound like it'd be a new chapter. It sounds like it's still the same breath he was using to talk about marriage. So in the first three verses, uh, we read, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So God prepares children for their lives by commanding them to obey their parents, fulfilling the fifth commandment. This obedience comes with the promise that their days will be long in the land that the Lord God is giving them. So it's interesting to me that the last commandment that Jesus obeys before he dies is this one. He honors his, well, he, it's honoring his mother actually because he cares for her uh, well-being by assigning the apostle John a son's responsibility for a mother Uh, before he dies. And he's fulfilling this commandment, which comes with a promise. And what's the promise? That your days will be long. So how could a dying man receive a promise that the, the, the fruit of that promise and fulfilling it is to have long days? Well, that necessitates resurrection, doesn't it? The only way he'll get the fruit of fulfilling that commandment and the promise that comes with it is he's going to have to rise from that death. And, and uh, the long days will become eternal days. So God commands children to obey their parents. And yes, that's very nice for parents to hear. And they should enjoy the fruits of the obedience of their children. But I think there's more to it. Because um, I believe, you know, I've been working with teenagers for like 28 years now. Um, that there's a direct relationship, there's a correlation between 
a, a, a child's ability to honor their mother and father who they can see while they're in their home and that, how that plays out when they have to honor God who they cannot see as they leave that home and they're on their own. So if you can't honor your mom and dad who you can see, how do you expect to honor God who you can't see? So there's this visible training ground for kids who will get frustrated with their parents, and especially in those teen years, so they're like, you guys don't know anything, can't relate to you, all that. It's exactly how they're going to feel about God many times in their life. Okay, that God must have been speaking to some other culture, this stuff doesn't work today, he just doesn't understand, all this stuff. Well, if you can honor your parents through your belief that they don't get you, um, then you're being trained to honor God, uh, who you can't see, even when you don't get or understand him. So it becomes uh, very dear to God's heart that children uh, obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes the honor your, your father and your mother. So it says then that, uh, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. This is like a proverb. Proverbs don't give you guaranteed truths that you just lock into and like, you know, train a child in the way they should go and when they're older they'll return to it. Sadly, we got too many people with testimonies that it never came true in their life, right? So it doesn't make the proverb wrong. A proverb's a proverb. It's not a law. Laws are laws and proverbs are proverbs. Proverbs are guiding principles that when when that that when we follow, the whole of life kind of falls into place, but it's not particular promises that if you do this, then this will happen. That's a whole different genre. The genre of a proverb are guiding principles. Like you're going to want to raise them in the way they go because what typically will happen when you do that is they will return to that. But it's not a, a, a steadfast thing through all the ages that every single situation is like that. That's what this is here. If you, if you train kids to obey and to honor their parents, you'll see that that guiding principle is going to lead them to be decision makers that actually promote their lives, that actually support their lives, that they don't make decisions that actually lead to endangering uh, their lives through, you know, poor decisions on, you know, drugs or, or uh, just ways of living that don't promote life very well. So proverbially, if you... Um, if, if you're raising your kids to, to honor you as parents, you're, you're putting them into the category where the success of long life on the earth in the sense of good and healthy life, uh, you're setting that up for that. So um, <clears throat> if we look at what God, where this is quoted in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, we see... It says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So you take that, and then in the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 6, how can we set this cycle up of success, you know, from generation to generation? Well, God says in the great Shema, this, this great verse of Deuteronomy 6.4, he says, hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's going to be hard for you to find a time that's not included in those four parameters, correct? Uh, you're to be teaching your children about God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. With those principles in line, you're setting your kids up for those parameters that lead uh, to long life and, and, and relationship with the Lord. So, back to Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And he says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Okay, that's a direct fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 6.4 great Shema that we covered. But when fathers point to themselves as the ultimate source of authority rather than God, it leads children to exasperation or wrath. Why? Because they grow to learn that their fathers aren't as perfect as they once thought. You know, I remember this progression in my life. I remember when I thought my dad was the strongest, the smartest, and never was wrong. And then all of a sudden you start realizing other dads are stronger. You know, wow, he was actually wrong about that thing. And you start, you start seeing the cracks in the armor and so forth. And what people tend to do is whatever view they have of their father, as soon as they hear about God as a father, they put the face of their earthly father onto their heavenly father. And that's how they now view that father. And that's why a lot of people stay distanced from God is simply because they want to be distant from earthly father. So, so here... You know, we're told to teach, uh, teach our children about God. We're not to take that role of God in their life. We're supposed to acknowledge our flaws, apologize for our flaws, and the whole time be pointing them to, hey, I get forgiveness for my flaws from the Lord, as you will too, son or daughter. And um, you're not to look to me as the ultimate source of everything. You look to me as the one who's looking to him for you so that when you get your adult legs under you, you've been trained to respond to him as well. But the exasperation that Paul is forbidding fathers to give to their children often comes when the father takes that all authoritative role of God in their lives. And then the cracks in the armor will be seen and the kids will get exasperated at that, especially sons, because sons very naturally work on imi uh, in, in, imitating their fathers. You know, very often they'll go in the closet and put those shoes on and walk around the house in father's shoes and dad's shoes. Um, very much wanting to be like dad. Well, if, that, if you're playing God in that house instead of pointing to God in that house, then when they see the cracks in your armor, they're going to attribute those cracks to God and you're setting them up for broken relationship with God. So here Paul's warning against the exasperation of your children. Now he doesn't address moms in particular, and maybe that's just because it's either because he sees the natural instinct of mothers, and that natural instinct seems pretty powerful with raising kids, or <clears throat> maybe he's learned in another setting not to criticize women because it comes back on him too hard through emails and stuff like that. That's another possibility. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, verse 5. Now, after talking about uh, finishing chapter 5 with husbands and wives, opening chapter 6 with children, 
Now he goes on to 5 through 8. He says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. A couple things to know about this. First of all, Paul is calling people to be found faithful in the circumstances that they find themselves. He doesn't try to overthrow any institutions here. He says, you're going to find yourself in circumstances. You're going to find yourself in positions in life. And I'm going to tell you how to be a Christian in those circumstances. Instead of saying, he, he doesn't, he's not extending pity to them. And first of all, we have to talk about the slavery of the New Testament. Because you cannot use an American context for understanding biblical slavery. Okay? They are not the same thing. Okay? So, in fact, um, the Old Testament laws concerning slavery recognize it to be a substandard position, one of social weakness and vulnerability, even despair. Hebrews were allowed to voluntarily enter into servanthood for six years because of, because of poverty, though they were certain, there were certain conditions on which they might elect to become a bond slave for life. So in other words, in certain situations of poverty, they could volunteer themselves to be the bond servant of a family either to support themselves or to pay off debt. It was like indentured servitude for them. But because of that, God actually demanded that every seventh year they're set free. So God is watching out for any kind of over-exertion of this bond-master relationship. And so he tells them, you got to set them free every, every seven years or every jubilee. If it happens to be a jubilee year, then they're set free before the seven years if that 49th year hit before the seven years were up. So God is always supplying avenues of freedom for these indentured uh, servants. These are fellow Hebrews we're talking about. Now, if you wonder, well, what about people from other countries that became their slaves? Well, that was usually a wartime ethic where they were supposed to be wiped out and killed, but in some cases they took some to be bond servants, which is actually an act of mercy on the enemy that you were supposed to, to uh, kill anyways. So... Um, and we see one instance where the Gibeonites actually trick the Israelites into being their bond servants because they know they're supposed to be wiped out by them. But they, remember, they pretend to be from some far, far, far away country that has nothing to do with the promised land. And uh, the Israelites believe them and allow them in. And then they find out later that they were tricked and fooled. But because they made an oath that they would let them live with them, they made them like the water carriers and the woodcutters and things like that. So... Very often, biblical slavery was either a form of mercy on what's supposed to have happened, or if it was Hebrew to Hebrew, it was a way of uh, paying debts back. And God had provided avenues of freedom in all those cases, and even provided a way where if your bondservant doesn't want to leave, then you're to pierce the ear and they're to know. If you're like, hey, that guy's been in your house like 10 years, what's up with that? You would look at the pierced ear and go, oh, he volunteered to stay. He wanted to stay even longer. So we cannot equate that with the atrocity of, um, you know, uh, 
you know, 150 years ago in our country type of thing, okay? We can't, we can't hear that word bond, servant, or slavery and equate those. Um, so, you can see in the notes, it says, during their service, they were, be, they were to be treated as a hired worker and not as a slave and released during the year of Jubilee, presumably if this came earlier than the six years of service. When these, with these conditions, the Hebrew servant was to enjoy a position not unlike an indentured servant, as practiced in colonial America. The indentured servant, not a slave. In a similar fashion, temporary residents in Israel could also elect voluntary service to pay off debts and were allowed to be redeemed back by their relatives. Captives of war, however, could be made slaves for life, though there were also regulations regarding uh, women in there, and I gave you one, two, uh, three different references uh, to see that in. Likewise, slaves were to be treated fairly, receive just wages. They were not to work during the Sabbath, and they were not to be treated harshly or severely, and I give you several references there you can explore. Kidnapping of a Hebrew into slavery was punishable by death. So the very thing that Americans did to Africans back then, God says if, 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 if a Hebrew does that, they're to, they're to die for doing that. And any slave from any nation was to be given refuge and not, and any slave from any nation was to be given refuge and not return to the owner. So if they're running away from their own owners, the Hebrews were to give them refuge. Such laws recognize the essential humanity of and justice afforded to a person reduced to slavery. So, Paul finishes that section by saying, not calling them out of their position of bondservanthood, but how to be a Christian in that bondservanthood. And there's an entire book of the New Testament dedicated to that, isn't there? Philemon. It's all about a runaway slave, Onesimus, who ends up in Rome caring for Paul while he's in prison. And Onesimus receives salvation under Paul, and Paul now writes to his owner, Philemon, and tells him, you're to receive him back as a brother in Christ, not as your bondservant. And he says, because you're a brother in Christ, Philemon, I know you'll see the, the, that that's the right thing to do. And so where he could literally be marching Onesimus to his death by sending him back, Paul's so confident in the Christian concept that he's putting forth that Philemon will receive that and therefore receive Onesimus back as a brother in Christ, not as a as a slave anymore. Now, 21st century America, you're probably sitting there going, yeah, that's how it should be. If you were in the first century, you'd be saying, we've never seen that before. We've never seen treatment of servants that good before. This is brand new concepts introduced by Christianity in this, in, in, in this area, in, in Judaism in the Old Testament. All right. Now, verse 9, uh, Ephesians 6. And you masters do the same things to them. Where would you ever hear a, an admonition to masters to treat their servants the same way their servants treat them? Right? It's groundbreaking. Okay? And you masters do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So there's the model. Okay? So, so uh, masters, here's how you're to be a master. Think of your master. And how your master treats you. That's your model for how you treat those that you have authority over now. Okay. All right. Verse 10. Finally, 
my brethren. So he uses this word finally to summarize the last five plus chapters of this book. So he's wrapping up this entire, all these teachings, the last five chapters with these last insights that he has. So finally summarizes the last five plus chapter. So Paul says that in light of all that God has done for you, your standing in glory with him, his great plan for the ages with you, his working with you through it all, his inclusion of you in his saving work. Paul then says in light of all of this, he's going to say you got to be ready to fight. Okay? This isn't like you're getting all this stuff and you're put in this great position. He says, you've made a lot of enemies by embracing your salvation. And those enemies are not necessarily earthly enemies. He's going to be addressing the heavenly realm of enemies that you gained by following Christ. And this is an awareness that I think needs to become much more part of our conversations as Christians together, okay? So, <clears throat> he says, you got to be ready to fight, and here's how he says it. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, remember, he's chained to a soldier when he's writing this. this is, he's writing from a, a prison, probably staring at a soldier when he talks about putting on the armor of God. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So after Paul tells all, all, all this glorious stuff to us through all of Ephesians with the great joy and vigor that he did it with, he gives some instructions about, hey, you're going to be moms and dads and you're going to have children. So children, this is how you're to be. Moms and dads, this is how you're to be. This is how your marriages should go. This is how the bondservant-master relationship should look because all of us are bondservants to Christ, right? We have a master ourselves. And then he says, now with all of that intact in place, realize that you've got to be strong in your family structures. You've got to have good relationships with one another because together we're fighting not against flesh and blood, but we're fighting, and you'll see the words that he uses in a moment. Um, here he says... You're going to have to stand against the wiles of the devil. You're going to have to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I think it's four times in these next three verses he's going to use that word stand. So stand means there's a threat of you falling, correct? There's this threat of you falling and you're being called to stand, okay? So he wants you to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we have to put on this spiritual armor. To think that we don't need spiritual armor is to not know who our opponents are. It's to not recognize the enemy accurately. So he's going to introduce us to our opponents. He's going to let us know here who the battle's against. So in verse 12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, fellow humans. He says, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So here's what we see, but what we don't see is what we're fighting. Can you imagine going into battle blindfolded? Okay. So it's what we don't see is what we're uh, fighting against, 
He says you're fighting against principalities. That's the idea of, of heavenly governments, heavenly um, uh, authorities in the spiritual realm. He says against, so this is all against us. Everything's against. Against powers. Again, it's that exousia. It's this idea of those that actually have like armies to command. These are powers. It says it's against rulers, and they're rulers of the darkness of this age. So where God is light and there is no darkness in him at all, these are rulers of the darkness, where there's, God is not uh, recognized as, as their influence. Again, the word against. It's against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Okay? So when we, we hear God called the Lord of hosts, and that idea of hosts is, is this idea, it's a military term of, of, of infantry, of, of, of soldiers, of, of fighters. So these are spiritual fighters, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's this recognition of spiritual warfare. I know in, 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 my, in my life when I realize that my prayers are becoming robotic, which often leads me to not pray as much when they're not as heartfelt, one thing I know for sure that's happening in those times is all I'm seeing is the, is the visible realm. I'm not seeing the spiritual realm anymore. The spiritual realm has become something I'm not in tune with anymore. And so therefore, you know, hanging out with you guys, I don't feel a strong need to pray. It's like I can handle this stuff, right? But if I realize these words, okay, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, that'll get you to your knees, right? That'll get you to your knees. You're going to need spiritual power. Because after Paul names all of this armor that we're to put on, as he describes this armor piece by piece and what its function is and all that, He's going to finish it all with the word prayer. You're going to have to pray through all this. It's not even enough just to put on the armor. You've got to be a prayer warrior. So verse 13. Well, when we talk about these, these uh, opponents, these opponents, just to give you six other references to them, like Ephesians 1, this very book, very first chapter of this book, Ephesians 1, uh, 20 and 21. It says, Talk about God's power. It says God's power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So some of that same language that we're getting of our, of our enemies here. Colossians 1.16 For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, okay? Uh, and it's saying that those principalities and powers were created by him and through him and for him. In other words, there's, just like there's a rebellion of humans on the earth against God, there's a rebellion going on in the spiritual realm against God, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, um, which will make for a very interesting Q&A today, I think. All right. 
Uh, chapter 2, verse 10, same book, Colossians. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Okay, so Christ stands at the head of all these principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, us. Okay, we're to display this wisdom of God to who? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Same exact language. Okay? I mean, are we getting this? This is like, we're to make known the wisdom of God by how we're following God and how we're living our Christian lives is witnessing to those principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay? Now, um, we can go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, to, uh, delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is what? Death. Okay. Um, Colossians 2.15 is my favorite. Well, you know, I'm going to start in verse 11. I like 15 so much. In him... Okay, Paul likes that, those two words, doesn't he? All of this is true in him. You're not in him, none of this is true. It's all true in him. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the, sin, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And nailing those commandments that we can't fulfill to the cross, it says in 15, having disarmed principalities and powers... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, it being the cross, okay? So there's your warrior Jesus, okay? Jesus is going to battle against the spiritual realm. Now, I forget where it says this. Some of you in the room might be able to recall it quickly, but it talks about um, that um, if, it says if they had, if they had known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So who's the they? Well, we think the Romans. But you know what? The Romans weren't too into this stuff. They didn't know much about this stuff. You might think the Pharisees. Yeah, if they had known, they might not have crucified the Lord of glory. But there's a wonderful uh, trail to follow throughout Scripture. There's this, there's this twine to follow throughout Scripture that's talking about it's these principalities and powers of darkness. That if they had known that the death of Jesus was going to be their defeat, they would not have allowed him to be crucified. So there's this, 
You know how Jesus will tell people that he heals, don't, don't tell anybody who healed you? Like we call this the messianic secret, right? Why? Why, if he wants to be known by the world, why is he hushing the people that receive healing? Because there's this idea that if, certain, if it becomes known to certain people who he is, they're not going to crucify him, right? But he's got to get crucified. So chew on that for a while. All right. Ephesians 6, 13. I'm going to throw you some other bones that you're really going to go nuts on, I think. All right, verse 13. It says, therefore, okay, so he just told you that you're not fighting people. You're fighting principalities and powers of darkness in heavenly places against the rulers of this age. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Is it amazing? that he's talking about all your horror movies, right? All these horror movies of, of evil and all this that's real. And then he's saying this, you, you're going to stand through all of that. Okay, you're going to stand despite the powers and principalities in the heavenly places that are of darkness coming against you. You're going to stand. Put on the armor of God. Be very prayerful. You're going to stand. Why? Because it says Christ already nailed all the accusations against you to the cross and defeated and even humiliated these principalities and powers of darkness. Okay? I'm pretty sure it's talking about his resurrection there. Okay? So he's already got the victory, and that's why Paul keeps saying, in Christ, in him, in him, in him, in Christ. There is where you're victorious. Okay? It's like you get to watch the game, see the winner, and then sneak over to his side and receive the trophy. It's literally like that. All right, now. So he wants us to stand. Now, go with me to Isaiah 59. We can see this predicted and played out. Isaiah 59, going to be looking at, starting in verse 15b. Isaiah 59, starting in 15b, it says... Then the Lord saw it, it's talking about these sins, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. So where's the prayer warriors? Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Any of that language sound familiar to you? Okay. This is what's coming now in Ephesians 6. So I want you to see that as God is fighting these battles, because he doesn't see anybody rising up to fight, it says God himself puts on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and all of this. He's dressing himself in the armor for the battle. And then, but it says this, and I just turned away from it without reading it. Hold on one second. Isaiah 15, ah, right there, good. But notice this. I got to read more. It says uh, now in verse 18, according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, 
The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My Spirit, who's upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants, says the Lord. From this time and forevermore. Notice how it switches to God's doing this, God's doing this, God's doing this. And then it switches to me. Hey, with this covenant, I'm putting my spirit now on you. And these words are going to be in your mouth. So after he puts on that spiritual armor and he fights, he now says, now I'm going to give it to you. And Paul picks up on that now in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. um, Well, let me... Uh, look at Colossians 2 with that, because I think what I shared with you in Colossians 2 is speaking right in on this. So in Colossians 2, starting in uh, 13, I know I gave you 15, but starting in 13, uh, that's where it says, and you dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him and forgave you all your trespasses, wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So now he's saying, listen, I'm turning the battle over to you. But he's saying this, but I've already beat them. So all you have to do is stay in Christ. It's where the victory is, right? You've got to stay in him. It's where the victory is, okay? Everybody in Christ wins. So... <clears throat> Jesus calls himself a lot of things in John's gospel. One of the things he calls himself is the door, right? He's the door. Well, what would that mean to them back then? Okay. Well, they had doors that were very significant in their walk with God throughout the Old Testament. The first door being Noah's door, right? God said to make one door, right? So if they want to not be a part of the judgment, how many ways do they have to be saved? You got one. There's one door. Whoever's in that door is going to live. Whoever's outside that door is going to die. The next door we come across is the Passover door, right? You sprinkle the blood on the doorpost. Whoever's inside that door is going to live. Whoever's outside is going to die. Then you get a door, Rahab's door. Mark it with a scarlet cord. Whoever's in that door is going to live. Whoever's outside that door is going to die. Now do you see why Jesus says he's the door? Whoever's in me. What's the two words Paul loves so much? In him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ. He's the door. If you're in him, you will live. You will stand, is the word he's using in Ephesians 6. In him, you will stand. Outside of him, you will die. He's the door. He's one of these biblical doors. Okay? All you got to do is be in that door. All right, verse 14 to 17, Ephesians 6. Stand, therefore... Notice that's all we're asked to do. It's like, put all this armor on, da-da-da, and then, okay, what do I do now? Stand. That's how you fight. Where do you stand? In him, right? Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So girding your waist with truth. Now, everything starts with truth, right? If you're going to be in him, he's the truth, correct? Okay, so it all starts with truth. So what, if, if it all comes true for you in truth, what is the devil going to be telling you then? Lies. Lies upon lies upon lies. Okay? 
do you feel like you can even watch the news and know what the heck's going on in the world? No. You're just like, which side of the lie are you on now, right? And how, how do I weave through all these lies to figure out what might actually be real out there, right? Okay, so, so uh, it says, gird yourself with truth. Gird your waist with truth. It's your belt. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, just like Isaiah 59, okay? So now we have this blessed breast. Ugh breastplate of righteousness, and that makes you untouchable, okay? Now, honestly, when I hear this, I'm going to tell you who I think of, quite frankly, this breastplate of righteousness. This is a term I kept hearing over and over again when I watched Brett Kavanaugh stand up against all those lies. When I saw that man get blasted and lied about and people coming forward and saying, yes, he did rape and da-da-da-da-da, and it was lie after lie. And he's got his wife and kids sitting right behind him as these accusations are flying. And I watched that man keep his integrity, keep his faith, and march forward with truth. I could almost see this breastplate of righteousness. He just kept being righteous. And it all played out for, in the end for him. But I got to tell you, that's, that's who comes to my mind when I read that term. The strength and the faith and the trust in that man through all of that. He wore that breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So obviously your feet are what bring you to different places and, you're to, and, and so what does he have equated with your feet? The gospel, the gospel of peace. And where did I, oh, Isaiah 52, 7. You see where Paul's mind is when he writes some of this stuff. It's like he just did his devotions in Isaiah, and then he writes the book of Ephesians. Isaiah 57, I think it's uh, verse, oh gosh, did I circle it? Isaiah 52, 7. Oh, I said 57. I'm sorry, it's 52, 7. There it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So now Paul says, put on your feet the gospel of peace. That's what you bring with you. Um, verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, they would have these wooden shields that Paul's saying, now that's your shield of faith. Here's what faith does for you. It does what a shield does for a soldier because they would shoot arrows with fire on the tips to try to burn things up. So they had to have shields that when the, air, the fire of the arrows hit their shields, they, their, their, the wood of their shields was meant to, to actually have the, the fire, uh, it quenched that fire, not become a lit by that fire. So they were designed to quench these fiery darts of the devil. That was their shield. So Paul says that's what your faith is. As you walk and trust with God, that's what, what Satan's arrows can't penetrate is your faith. Okay, so when you stand strong in the faith, his arrows at you get quenched. And take on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation allows your mind to be guarded. We have to guard our minds, don't we? Okay, especially in our day and age. Okay, we get earbuds to put in our ears and nobody knows what we're actually 
putting into our brains at that time? And, and what is one of the lies that people believe? You know, what I listen to doesn't affect me, right? It doesn't affect me. Well, I guarantee you it does because if I put right now over these speakers any kind of music, every one of you is going to start moving a little bit differently. You're going to start bobbing your head a little bit, moving your foot, and as you're doing all that, you're going to go, music doesn't affect me. And you're going to go, then why are you moving like you're moving? There is no music. You look really silly moving like that, right? The music does affect you. Words affect you even more than music affects you. Those are messages. Those are messages that are going in there, okay? Um, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We see that played out in other books of the Bible, that the Word of God is the sword. You see, Jesus in Revelation has a sword in his mouth, and with it he slays the nations. Hebrews says that sword is the Word of God, and Ephesians says that sword is the Word of God. So how does Jesus slay the nations? It's holding this up to the unbeliever and saying, here's your condemnation. This is why you're being condemned. It's this word that you denied, okay? So the word that gets denied that leads to the sword going against people, this is what you do your morning devotions in. This is where the sword becomes your friend and not your, your foe. And then after all of this armor, he says in verse 18, praying. Okay, it's praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It means we pray for one another, right? Everybody's at a different area of the battle, right? Everybody has a different aspect of the battle. Some, some are getting their faith attacked. Some are getting their health attacked. Some are getting their finances attacked. Some are getting their marriage attacked. Some are getting attacked through their children. There's attacks going everywhere. It says, pray for the saints. It's part of this warfare. It's the prayers. And he says this, pray for me, verse 19. What's he praying for? Well, what was this whole gospel about? This was the gospel of Paul celebrating the fact that God's plans to reconcile all things to himself, Gentile and Jew, is being fulfilled at the, with the cross. Okay? So, so, but I'm going to suggest to you in a moment something else, but I'm not going to do it right now. All right. So he says, it has to do with reconciling all things to himself. If I lose that train of thought, that's what it, what, where I want to go. Now, so he's saying, pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. What did he say in previous chapters was the mystery? That the Gentiles are going to be the people of God, Right? For which I am an ambassador in chains. There's the chains that he's in, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, isn't it incredible that this letter that's gone to literally billions of people over thousands of years was written when he was chained down and couldn't go anywhere? Isn't that power of God? He's chained down and he can't go next door. Yet what he writes has reached the world for thousands of years, okay? So he says this, I need you to pray boldly for me that my utterance may get out. You think those prayers worked? Okay. That I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, he ends up talking about 
reconciling all things to himself. And I said, I think it's more than just Jew and Gentile, because what did he just talk about? Principalities and powers of darkness in the heavenly places, correct? Now, one of the... <laughs> I feel like I'm playing games with you, because I'm going to throw something out there, and we're going to have no time to unpack it fully, and then we're going to do Q&A, and you're going to be like, what, what, what? But that'll be fun, so we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, so... But as far as spiritual warfare goes, I think this, is, this has been one of the most helpful pictures for me seeing this whole thing going down, and it's this. If you read, first of all, Genesis 6, right, we get this title, sons of God, that go into the daughters of men, and they have children by them, right, and they become giants, and they become, uh, the, the, the term mighty is used, there's these mighty men of old, men of renown. And the wickedness gets described as their thoughts are only evil continuously, right? So it's, the, it's this group called the sons of God. Now, we're used to that being referred to Christians, but it's not being referred to as Christians there, okay? The Bible calls them Nephilim, okay, which means the fallen ones. These are fallen, sinful, heavenly beings, powers of darkness that, are, that, are, that have fallen, and now they're populating the earth in the antediluvian world with wicked spiritual offspring, okay? So now, whether it's Nephilim or Raphaim or Anakim, you see those terms come up throughout the Old Testament up until David's battle with Goliath, okay? And that's like the last of the Anakim that get killed off, okay? Now, the idea is, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, you'll see this, this thought of God's where he's saying that, well, first of all, you have the Tower of Babel and what happens there. There's one world language that gets confused and that forces people to divide up, right? So you get the formation of all these nations. In Deuteronomy 32, we're told that God is turning over authority of those nations to these principalities and powers, okay? Some might not be of darkness yet, some may be of darkness, but they all end up being of darkness because in Psalm 82, God says to them, he says, I have called you all Elohim. I've called you all gods, but you shall die like men. And then he tells them why they're gonna die like men, and it's because they gave no justice to the nations that they were ruling over. There was constant injustice. It's Everything Psalm 82 is about is the condemnation of those principalities and powers of darkness that we just read about, that Jesus humiliated them on the cross and all of that. You'll read in 2 Peter and you'll read in Jude about their being locked up in prison until they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire one day. Okay, that's the same trail that's going throughout the Bible from Genesis 6 all the way to probably I could even say Revelation I forget if it's 9 or 12, but it talks about them being released for a while from this prison, okay? So from Genesis 6 all the way to Revelation, you've got this thread of, the, of this wickedness in the spiritual realm going on. And they start off being called the sons of God. But then who do believers, what title do we take upon our salvation? Sons and daughters of God, right? And what does Paul say about us believers? He says, don't you know that one day you will judge angels, okay? 
So the role that these fallen wicked ones were supposed to fulfill in righteousness, God's raising us up to fill one day. And I think that's important to say to you because in a world where people are searching for meaning and purpose, are you going to find any Fortune 500 company that can give you meaning and purpose like that? There's no substitute for that. Okay? So why does, why does Paul emphatically call you to these lines of obedience? Because in this obedience, you're being trained up, you're being raised up to have a dignity attached to you for responsibilities in the next life. I've literally a kid say to me, are we just going to sit on a cloud and play a harp for all eternity? And I'm like, you know what kind of calluses you would get doing that? Okay. All right. Literally, they're wondering if they're going to be bored for all eternity. Now, Billy Joel, right? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, right? Okay, that idea. Well, that's why I'm saying it's important that we know and that we teach that there's an unbelievable plan, that there's so much going on that you're literally going to replace all these things that are creating spiritual warfare in your lives, you're going to judge them and replace them. Okay? That's what you're being raised up to do. Okay? And just like the military demands obedience from the ones they're training up to be soldiers, because when you go to war, there's no room for disobedience in warfare, is there? Okay? So you're being trained up in obedience to take on this magnificent role for all eternity. Okay? Remember Jesus said this? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with few. Now come take charge of 10 cities. You have any decades I went going, what cities? Who is there to rule over? You know, what's that all about? I can't tell you I have all the answers to that. But I can tell you, Jesus said it. Quite sure he meant it. Right? Okay. All right, anyways. Now, with all this warfare, warfare, warfare... How convinced is Paul that if you're in Christ, you'll stand through all that warfare? Well, look how his tone changes immediately in verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose. What purpose? That you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Okay. Hey, literally demonic warfare, get yourself ready, you got to fight it. And I'm going to send Tychicus so that you can know about me and that you may, he may comfort your hearts. How many people do you send off to war against demons and go, I want you to be comforted in that? So what is, how does he finish? Well, how did he start this letter? If you look at Ephesians 1 verse 2, here's how he decided to address this Gentile audience. In verse 2 he says, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing very well he wants to tell them about spiritual warfare. He says, but grace and peace to you as I get you ready for spiritual warfare. How's he finish? Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. He starts with grace and peace. He ends with peace and grace. Do you think we're on a winning team or what? Okay. Grace and peace to those who are in Christ. Peace and grace to those who are in Christ. Why? It's hard to relate to this because there's no earthly experience like it. But it's like, you know, you want to get one of those really cool Super Bowl rings? Well, 
you can raise yourself up to be an elite athlete, train, try out for teams, make a team, hopefully make the best team of all, win the Super Bowl, or you can let them win it and then step on the sideline and stick out your finger and see if you get a ring and just go, okay, I won. And I didn't have to do anything. That's what you're invited to spiritually with Christ, right? He did it all. He won it all. And he just says, be in the right door. He's the door, right? Be in the right door and you won. That's all you got to do, okay? All right. Let's thank him for that. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, this is just incredible things that you've done for us, Lord, that you're doing for us, that you will do for us, Lord. And, and uh, Lord, we look forward to continuing uh, to dress ourselves for these battles here on earth, Lord, and, and uh, just to receive your admonitions and your training, Lord, for what you have for us uh, forevermore. And so, Lord God, uh, we pray uh, to be stronger spiritually, Lord, that especially the sword of your word, Lord, that we would sharpen that every day. And Lord, we would um, just be ready for whatever Paul means by the wiles of the devil. And Lord, you, and, uh, your apostle told us uh, four times, Lord, in these three verses to stand as we're being attacked by this. And Lord, we know that you promised that we will stand if we build our foundation upon you, the rock, that there is no spiritual storm or physical storm that can take us down if we build our lives upon you. So Lord, I pray that you allow tonight to be a night where everybody gathered in this room and everybody watching online, Lord, even for days or weeks to come, that that would help them with the foundation of their life being you, Lord Jesus Christ. To you be all the glory and honor and power, Lord. And it's in that powerful name we pray. Amen.